welcome back. Let's just dive in. It was the summer of 1996, and I was single, I lived in Portland, I worked there, and I was in my office, I, I was also in seminary there, so I was in my office, and the phone rang, and when I picked it up, it was my gynecologist's office. And they said the doctor had had to leave town in an emergency, and they would need to reschedule me like a month or two down the road. And I said, oh no, my insurance is changing, and I really wanted to get that appointment taken care of before insurance changed. And the woman on the other end of the phone said, well, if you're willing to see anyone in the practice, we can see you tomorrow. And I said, I don't care. Big mistake. <laughs> so I wake up the next day, I get ready, and I go in, and I'm waiting, reading a magazine, and they call my name, I go back, they give me a gown that doesn't have buttons or anything on it, and I get in, and I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting. And the door, you know, that knock, 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 they want, like, you can do anything else to be ready. <laughs> and the, the doctor walked in, and I'm sitting there, and he looked at me, and he said, did you and I go to medical school together? And I said, no, but seminary together. You know that photograph that the man took? There are other things that men don't get that women would want. Um, he proceeded to get ready for the exam. And so there I am, feet in the stirrups, and he's like, oh, I remember the class we had together. <laughs> and he is like a, a shade tree mechanic under the hood, and he's saying to his assistant, and then he looks at me, tell her about that class we had. And I'm clinging to the gown, and I said, I don't normally talk during this. <laughs> and he goes back and he starts telling her about the class we had. And I'm, I'm frozen like a statue trying to save myself with nothing but a pack of gum in my purse that's out of reach at this very moment. It goes on and on. He explains that once he gets through seminary, they hope to go be missionaries. And of course, I am not against that. <laughs> but, but I can't believe this is happening to me. <laughs> and on he works. <laughs> so eventually, it was over. And he left. And I assured myself that no one else that I knew or didn't know was in the room. I got my clothes on. I collected myself. And I opened the door and began that long walk <laughs> back down the hallway to the lobby. And when I was just steps from the lobby door, he came out of an office and looked at me and smiled, and he said, was that awkward for you? 
I just continued to slink my way through the lobby and I didn't look back. I went on through my day, I got home that night, my roommates and I are gathered in the kitchen like we were many evenings and I'm recounting the horrors to my three roommates and as we stood there cooking dinner, one of the roommates who was in shock at the horrors said with a serving spoon in her hand, why would Susan have to go through that? Those stories that leave us asking why. Those stories, they might be my story, your story, the biblical stories. What is it about those stories that leave us asking why and we tell them over and over again because somehow in the mystery, there is something big for us. And as we get into the biblical story we'll look at now, I don't have all the answers to the why. I don't have all the answers to the why in my life or your lives. But what I know beyond a doubt, God is in our stories. I want to give background on the guys we're going to look at this morning. Three young men, their story took place thousands of years ago, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The book of 2 Kings tells us that they were born in the tribe of Judah during good King Josiah's reign in Jerusalem. So that means they had experienced good leadership to a certain point in their lives. They had had proper religious training. We, re we need to realize these guys are pleasing God. Uh, the Bible is full of stories of sinners. You and I, we're sinners. But this isn't a story about people that got into a mess because of sin. This is just one of those mysterious stories that can leave us asking why. It isn't a punishment from God that we're about to see, but it illustrates that God's people can have great difficulty in their lives, as we've already pondered this morning. From Daniel chapter 1, we learn that these three guys are bright, young, healthy guys, but they were part of a conquered people group. God had allowed a foreign king to come in and overtake their land and take many of the people back into captivity in the foreign country called Babylon. Even in captivity, we'll learn that God had not abandoned them. God had marked out a path for them. He would have prepared them for what was coming. Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, tells pretty plainly that it was actually God who took the people into captivity, and it would be God that would get them back out of captivity. This wasn't happening to these people beyond God's reach. And we learn about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that 
even in captivity, they were able to be pleasing God. What many of us would just presume would be life put on hold, they were actually lives growing in relationship with God. Further, in the story of the book of Daniel, we learn that in captivity, they prayed. They, they still were talking to God. We learn that God didn't do things for these guys just because they were wiser or better, but he just desired to reveal things to them, to have affectionate relationship with them. We know in the captivity, they had to wait at times. Things weren't just handed to them on a silver platter. Their relationship with God included that patience would have to be developed in them. Maybe these guys could have been left back home in the quasi-comforts of Israel, except for the fact that God had different plans for them than quasi-comfort. Only God knew the why to this story. We know these things about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it seems these are the things that were preparing them for what would come. These are the things, the simple things, that would prepare them to make bold statements about their God that we'll look at in just a few minutes. But I want to pause and I want to assure you that if you are not here today feeling bold thoughts about God, that, that's okay. He longs to be in relationship with you. He will show up for you. You don't need to be or do or perform in any certain way. Just look for him. Draw close to him. Let's get into the story more fully. Daniel chapter 3, the king of Babylon, this pagan king who has brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over into captivity. He builds this humongous statue, so big it wouldn't fit in this building, I don't think. And he dictated that everybody, everybody, everybody of all nations, people, everybody, when they hear the band play, they're to bow down and worship the statue. He's deluded into thinking that he rules the world. And he wanted everybody to know it. So the rule was when the band plays, everybody bows down. And the text at first tells us when the music started, everybody did bow down. But in Daniel chapter 3 verse 8, we see these guys come on the scene and it tells us they informed on the Jews. So now we'll pick up in Daniel chapter 3, verse 9. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
but there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. This was nothing but a plot to bring down Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys that had been living faithful lives to God. They had refused to bow to the statue, and the informants say, hey, you made the rule, they refused, and then they kind of reminded what the king had claimed he would do. And I just think he, the informant probably had slime dripping off his tongue <laughs> when he said, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and don't worship the gold statue you have set up. So then in verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? The king flew into a rage. He called in these three guys, is what I'm hearing about you true? And then there was no opportunity for them to respond in any way. At least the text doesn't give us that there was any space. And he just said, I'll give you one more chance. Bow down in worship, and if you refuse, I'm going to throw you into the blazing furnace. Let's stop here and think about what do we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're loyal to God. They knew God. They had learned to wait on God. They'd been willing to pray and see what God wanted to tell them. They had been identified as fine young men. But honestly, those are the things we knew about them prior to this very, very scary event in their lives. This terrible situation that they find themselves in through no fault of their own. So maybe we shouldn't assume that they'll remain the way they were when the chips are down, when the wheels fall off, when the going gets tough, when their lives are literally threatened by a blazing furnace. How will they respond. I want to try to illustrate this for you. When Nick and I, when our kids were really little, all five of us had gotten this terrible virus, this sickness. It included fevers, body aches, vomit, all kinds of nasty symptoms. 
Nick was the first one of us to get sick, and so as it played its course through our family, he was the first one of us to get well. So I remember our three kids were still sick in bed, and I was slumped over still with a fever in a chair, and Nick stood in the kitchen making a list to go to Costco. We needed things, we'd all been sick, and so he was just going to go out and forage for what we needed. Before he left, I brought up something. I asked him a favor that I had never asked in our whole marriage up to that point. Besides the virus, I was also on my period. <laughs> and I looked at him through feverish eyes, and I said, darling, would you be willing to get me some maxi pads while you're at Costco? He looked back at me with an awareness that he knew I believed his marriage vows were tied to this. <laughs> he said, darling, I'm a broken man. I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> so Nick left for Costco, and I slumped back over in my chair, and not much time had passed, just the amount of time it would have taken Nick to drive to Costco. The phone rang, I saw on the caller ID that it was Nick, and he began in these urgent tones to tell me that he was in the hygiene aisle at Costco. He said, when I told you I would get these for you, I didn't know how many options there were going to be. <laughs> I could tell he was pacing back and forth. He comes from generations of pacers. I could tell that he was nervous. I could tell there were other people around and he was embarrassed. And then in what seemed like a stage whisper, but it was yelling in my ear, Nick urgently said, Darling, what are wings? In that moment, Nick was facing the reality that we face every single day, day in and day out. The promise he made in the kitchen, would he be willing to keep it when the burner got turned up in the hygiene aisle at Costco? <laughs> now, that's a funny story. But here's the point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had undoubtedly made promises to God. They'd probably even encouraged and helped others make good, strong commitments to God. But now they face what could be certain death. How will these guys respond when it's very very scary. Let's go back to the text and pick up with verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue 
you have set up. They didn't wake up today with superhero trust or strength or faith. They'd been getting to know God over time. And over time, God had been revealing his character to them. God had given them opportunities, both small and large, to practice trusting him. And the king gave them one more chance to abandon their worship of the, the one true God. The king told them, if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And I imagine a sinister laugh coming out of the king's mouth right after he speaks those words. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I do know that the God in this biblical story is the same God in your life and in my life. Can you even imagine the faith and the trust it took for them to say, if we're thrown in the furnace, God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we won't turn our back on him just because life got difficult. They had to believe that God loved them, that he was good. The text, nothing in the text tells us that they had been in this situation before. There's no record that they'd been thrown in the furnace before and come out. Um, so they aren't, trusting God because he had done this very thing before. They're trusting God because they believe he will do whatever is needed in this situation. They believe that God is able to save them. They know he's able. They don't know if he will, but they know he can. They're giving the God of the universe all the room in the world to work. And because of that, the king was filled with rage and he ordered that the furnace be stoked seven times hotter than it was originally. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood there watching, what would have been going through their minds and their hearts. Let's ponder it for a minute. Let's imagine what might have been the thoughts and feelings they were having. Let's imagine what it would have been like to be there, to be them. This isn't a story they're reading. It's their lives. For them, it unfolded in real time, one minute at a time. They don't know how the story ends as they stand there, as the heat of the furnace just got stoked hotter. What if Shadrach was comparing himself and his situation to the friends he knew, or to his cousins, or his siblings, or his brothers? What if he was thinking, why me? Why not them? Why does this always have to happen to me? 
He's only human and the furnace is really hot. And what if Meshach was standing there paralyzed by fear? He had every right to be. Maybe he had a girlfriend lined up that he was going to marry soon. Was she there watching? Was his heart racing? Were his palms sweating? Was he able to speak? Could he even breathe? After all, he's only human. And the furnace is really hot. And what about Abednego? Is, what if he's just flat out angry? God, I trusted you and now this? What if he just flew into a rage and made matters worse like the king of Babylon had done? What if he goes off on everybody standing around as his dying act? He's only human and the furnace is hot. Those would be natural reactions, wouldn't they? Except for the fact that these guys know God. And it seems that their trust in God somehow superseded those natural human emotions they might have had. I'm not saying they didn't have the feelings and the thoughts. I'm not saying they weren't comparing, they weren't scared, they weren't angry. But somehow, they had verbally declared they wouldn't bow down. And now, they are not bowing down. Even when the furnace got hotter and hotter. They had enough faith in the moment to believe that God could do something. They didn't know what God might do, but they knew he could do something. So instead of just relying on their own ability to go off on God about how wrong he was or compare to other people or just be paralyzed in fear or lash out at the injustice of it all, what we see here is that those feelings, those emotions, those natural inclinations were somehow edged out or fought back by a willingness to trust God. Even as they faced the blazing furnace, something more difficult than they'd ever faced, relationship with God had preeminence in their lives. Daniel 3, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments." And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. And then almost like after effect, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. 
They were tied up, thrown in, and the men who threw them in died instantly that it was so hot. Did the people in the crowd start to walk away? Did the king give that sinister laugh again? Did their mothers fall to the ground weeping? The text doesn't give us answers to any of those questions because it hardly seems that there was time to even notice. Verse 24. But suddenly, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing wasn't scorched, and they didn't even smell like smoke. There was a fourth man in the fire, and all four of them were walking around freely, unharmed. And in that shocking moment, the pagan king noticed that the fourth man looked like a god. So he yelled for them to come out. The crowd came around and the truth was the fire hadn't even touched them. The fire didn't do things that fire does. Their hair wasn't singed, their clothing wasn't scorched, and they didn't smell like smoke. Imagine the stories these guys could tell. Imagine the impact it was going to have on others. And imagine how differently they looked at life after this. The king threw three men into the fire, but there was a fourth man in there. And it begs the question, who was he? I am willing to bet that Shadrach... Meshach and Abednego and just recognized him immediately. Many biblical scholars describe the fourth man as the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord, he's sometimes called. This is Jesus come to earth ahead of his own birth. The, the Bible doesn't describe to us that this happened very often, but when it did happen, it was because the situation was so dire that the only way for the situation to be taken care of was if Jesus would come and intervene. The situation was dire, but they knew God was capable of doing something. They didn't have a clue what he might do, but they believed he was capable. And it turns out they didn't go into the fire alone. 
Jesus got off of his heavenly throne where he'd been for all of eternity past and he came down to earth ahead of his own birth and he entered into a furnace with his people. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on that day. They had made a commitment that they wouldn't abandon God. And when that commitment was pushed to the max, when these ordinary human beings were pushed to the max, God showed up beyond the max. And it was only possible after they were thrown into the fire that they were able to experience God with them in the fire. It was only after they were thrown into the fire that they would be able to experience God with them in the fire. Jesus loved these guys and he came to earth ahead of his birth who did they even know him to be after this? Maybe the better question to ask, what would they have missed out on if they hadn't gone into the fire? They would have missed out on Jesus coming into the fire with them. It's probably possible that Life could have gone on. They could have said, yeah, we know God. But they wouldn't know him as deeply or miraculously or personally as they now know him. No way. Impossible. Chapter 3 of Daniel just finishes with this scene where the crazy king says, okay, this was pretty impressive. Now everybody worship." Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, and if you don't, your homes will be turned into rubble. Well, that might seem good at first, but it's actually pretty hilarious. Kings of the world can't just boss God around. Kings of the world can't change people's hearts. And God wants personal friendship with people heart connection with you and with me. And he's even willing to go into the fire with us in order to foster that friendship. I'm guessing that none of you have ever been thrown into a blazing furnace. I have never been but I believe it's easy to say that most of us, actually all of us, will face those situations where the burner is turned way hot. Where the situation is so fiery to us that the only option we will have and the best option is to see what God will do. Peter, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he went on to be a leader in the early church, he wrote a letter. And 1 Peter chapter 4, here is what Peter wrote to people. 
Christians that needed to manage and move forward in life. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. I've had times in life where I've needed God to show up for me. Sometimes I didn't even yet know I needed him to show up. And I'm betting, I'm guessing that all of you have had those times too, where we need God to show up and do what only he can do, even when we don't know what that would be. And if you think about things in your life, and I think about the ones in my life, we know that these fiery trials, as Peter called them, they're not linear. They're not orderly. That's the nature of a fiery trial. They're not neat and tidy, so we just tie them up with a bow when we're finished. Sometimes they go on and on and on. They blindside us at times. They shock us, they scare us, they shake us. I'm going to share a few of these things from my life. And in just a little bit in your small groups, you'll be able to talk with each other about it. And like I said, I've never met Jesus in a furnace. But the three stories I want to tell you about are when I met him in a car in my recliner, and in my bedroom closet. In 2002, I was 38 years old, and I was preparing to go to my 20th high school reunion. I left the office at church, where I was pastor of women's ministries at the time, and I began driving home to Kaiser. That night, I would be taking a red-eye flight and go to southern Ohio, and I should have had nothing but eagerness in my mind. But somehow it didn't matter to me that I was going to get to see my parents. Didn't matter that I was going to get to be with my childhood friends. Didn't matter that as the senior superlative voted most likely to succeed, I could waltz into that reunion and pretend I was successful. It didn't matter that I had a great job at our church. It didn't matter to me in that moment that my husband loved me. I was focused on the fact that I was 38 years old and I didn't have children. And I was playing mind games with myself. I was comparing myself to people I hadn't seen in 20 years and I knew that they were all gonna have porchfuls of beautiful, wonderful children. And sitting at Broadway and Salem Parkway at a red light, I told God, I think this is going to kill me. And then Jesus came into the car with me. If he hadn't, I might have gone into an emotional tailspin comparing my life to all the other members of the class of 1982. But when Jesus entered my car with me that night, it was miraculous to me. 
He did what I needed. On that drive from church to Kaiser, by his spirit, he entered my thoughts. He filled my mind. He entered my emotions. And he assured me that he held my life in his hands. And he gave me something far more meaningful that night than children. He gave me himself. He loved me more deeply than I had ever experienced I was comparing myself to others, but I met the incomparable Christ at the intersection of Broadway and Salem Parkway. Jesus in my car that night moved me from comparison games to contentment that was only available to me by his power. Jesus assured me of his love for me that night, childless me, struggling me, the me that I was right then and there. Only by the power of God, I went to the reunion, I had a great time, and I walked with Jesus through the whole weekend in contentment, not in comparison. Because he was in that fire with me. Another time that I palpably experienced Jesus with me when the heat was really turned up was in a recliner in our family room at home. Four years after that class reunion, through miracles... I had gotten pregnant and had our daughter, Sarah. And although it had taken seven years for me to get pregnant with her, it took only seven months for me to get pregnant with our boys after Sarah had been born. So if you do the math, I pushed out three babies in 16 and a half months. I'm just saying. Yeah, I'll receive that. (laughs) It's a long story that I don't have time to go into this morning, but Daniel and Joshua, our sons, just were not developing on any sort of trajectory that made sense. It wasn't immediately something that Nick and I could put our finger on, but over time, we knew that our boys weren't developing like they should be. We read books, we talked to our doctor, we prayed, we wrestled. But it came to a head for me one day when Nick was at work and the three kids happened to be napping all at the same time. I was sitting in my recliner and I finally mustered up the courage, the strength, to call a friend of mine whose grandson has autism. My body was shaking and the blood running through my veins felt like ice water. I posed questions to my friend and then I knew the truth. Daniel and Joshua have autism too, a really significant form of it. I didn't tell my friend on the phone that I had reached that conclusion and I don't remember the rest of our conversation. But what I remember is that while I sat there in grief, like I'd never experienced before, 
Jesus, God's one and only son, was in the recliner with me. He just enveloped me. He took me and my fear into his hands, and he held me in the fear while I could catch my breath. If I hadn't been scared that day, I wouldn't have needed Jesus. So again, I don't have all the answers to the why, but I know that being scared was the right place to be that day because I met Jesus. And if I hadn't, I would have missed out on what is it like to sit with Jesus in grief and fear. Daniel and Joshua turned 15 last Saturday, and they are both giants of boys, and they're both still nonverbal. They have many developmental issues, and I am certain Jesus is able to heal them. I know he can, but thus far, he hasn't chosen to do that. But he is with me, and his presence has saved me from this fire. Slowly but surely, Jesus began to transform my fear into courage. And I'm not a perfect mom, but I tell you what, by the power of Jesus whose spirit is in me, I am going to be a courageous mom. And when the burner underneath me as a mom gets hot, I'm going to respond in the courage given to me by Jesus. The final story I'll tell you for now is when Jesus met me in my bedroom closet. As my children began to grow, though they're only 16 and a half months apart, our daughter just began to take off and thrive. I would joke that she had come out of the womb and she brought every word and every last, every last alphabet letter out of the womb so that when Daniel and Joshua were in there, there were no words, no letters, nothing for them to grab onto. <laughs> and while Sarah was growing and developing and thriving, our sons were in effect, becoming more and more delayed. It was outrageous to me to discover how differently our daughter was treated in the world compared to how our sons were treated. It was shocking to realize who rejected Daniel and Joshua. It was shocking to realize that the world Daniel and Joshua were born into just was not ready for them. Over the course of several years, I grew increasingly angry. More and more difficulty piled up. Condescension from people we didn't even know and rudeness from people we did know. Sleep deprivation. Accidental tragedies. One time, one of my sons who rides a horse every Saturday, swims like a fish, bounces on a trampoline like a gymnast, 
but who can't read or write or count or speak. The people overseeing him accidentally overdosed him on a medication to the power of 10 two days in a row because they misread the decimal point. That led to a seizure, an ambulance ride, lots of vomit, probably harm to his brain. And keep in mind, all of these things were just this big glob of goo building for years. I reached a point where I think I just couldn't take it anymore. I knew I was angry and I was sure that at times at least I was sinning in my anger. So one day when Nick and our kids were out of the house, I decided to go into our bedroom closet and scream. I honestly deluded myself into thinking that one good scream would get it all out. <laughs> you know that's not how it went, evidently. When I got into the closet and let out that first scream, all of a sudden it just kept coming and coming and I became a raving lunatic. Before I knew what I was doing, I was screaming things at God that they tell me NFL coaches are fined thousands of dollars <laughs> for screaming. And then what came out of my mouth at God stopped me in my tracks. I, I am not kidding. Out loud to God, I screamed, you don't know what it's like to have a son that people reject. I had just shouted the stupidest thing <laughs> anyone could shout at God. You can imagine the silence that followed. <laughs> God didn't need to say anything back to me. I'm not saying he was afraid of me. <laughs> But he didn't need to say anything back to me. He demonstrated his love for me in that moment. He demonstrated his presence with me in that moment by just letting me be with him in the silence. And I was safe. I was safe in that silence. Of course God knows what it's like to have a son rejected. People have been rejecting his son Jesus for 2,000 years. My tirade in the closet that day proved to me that even in my intense anger, Jesus was willing to be with me. I'm not suggesting that Jesus enjoyed the tirade. But even screaming at him didn't deter him from his commitment to be there with me and do for me what I needed. He wanted me to know at the core of my being, yes, Susan, I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. And what he would do in the fire for me was far more important than what I might try to do on my own. 
pretty soon after the fiery closet tirade, as it's become known, I was motivated to go see a counselor, and for like more than a year, I saw a counselor, and I began to work through the pent-up things that were in me and bothering me. I needed to learn to forgive people. A lot of my anger was caused not by what someone else had done, but by the unforgiveness I was harboring inside. And as I worked with a counselor, my anger could be turned to sadness. And I began to learn something life-altering. In anger, I felt powerful. And a powerful mama don't turn to God as readily as she should. But in sadness, I felt weak. And in my weakness, I knew I needed God. And this process for me opened a doorway for Jesus to be fully present with me in the greatest difficulty I'd ever faced. When I welcomed him into that fire, he turned my sadness into peace, the peace that only he can bring, not a temporary peace, not a cotton candy, fluffy, pretty type of peace, but a fully developing, overwhelming peace. The God of the universe is with me, peace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in a fiery furnace that had been stoked up seven times hot. And they found Jesus in there. I've never been in a furnace but I know what it feels like to have the burners in my life turned up really hot. And right in the midst of those difficulties that do continue on, I'm finding Jesus. And that's where I grow to know him and enjoy him more personally, more miraculously, and more deeply. That's where I get him in ways that otherwise I never would. I don't know where your burners are turned up hot or where your situations are difficult or messy or scary or hard. But I do know that Jesus loves you and he longs to be with you right here right now. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you for who you are and who you are to us. Praise you that no burner can be too hot, no goo, no too messy, and no anger or fear too extreme for you. We cry out to you, I cry out to you for all of us that you would be who you know you can be to us. Thank you. Amen.